So, you know, I think the 1970s were really framed. They were certainly framed in the media as something that was like the bad times were happening in Britain. Mm. So like they weren't the, like the troubles elsewhere, not the actual troubles, but, you know, the uh, challenges faced by literally global recession that was like sparked by OPEC. That wasn't really um, explored. It wasn't sure. really represented much in the media. It became one of these things that often in the British cultural imaginary was like, oh, my God, Britain is the sick man of Europe. It's going to the dogs without any kind of reflection on the fact that like this was happening elsewhere. So there are geopolitical and economic Geopolitical forces. and economic yeah, yeah. and social social forces, you know, yeah, yeah, that yeah. were like that were like really strong that could be seen kind of globally um, in different contexts in different ways especially as old orthodoxies were challenged whether they be economic or whether they be social you know mm. that they were seriously being challenged it yeah the historicization of the 70s in britain as that exactly as you described sort of unique series of unending but somehow conflated crises suits kind of a neoliberal telling of history because it suggests that there was a exactly. point in 1979 when everything started to change for the better and if you turn the clock back to that quote unquote if you turn the clock back to the 70s if we if we regress ultimately to the 1970s you'll be get that's what you'll get again you'll get you'll get all of these yeah. all of these quite historically specific crises will happen again and it will happen if you let trade unions get that you know win win a one percent pay rise yeah exactly win for that win for their members a pay rise that actually keeps up with inflation so that they can feed their families essentially um, okay so think of it in this way right so like okay there's a recession in the 1970s and um the new right kind of gain a kind of control of the narrative in 79 over like you know the winter of discontent mm. and they basically usher in a kind of new political change because they're like, the old model wasn't working. We're going to bring in a new model that will work, right? Now, we had a recession, right? You know, sparked by the um, global financial crisis, by the crash, right? In 2008, yeah. And at no point was it like neoliberalism isn't working. At no point was there a huge (laughs) shift. In fact, there was a larger shift towards basically publicly subsidising all of these huge banks, giving them shitloads of money. And actually, do you know what? In terms of the strikes... It was there was this amazing interview on LBC with this business owner. I don't know their name, um, and she said there is socialism in this country, heavy socialism for the corporate world, but there's no socialism socialism for the poor people. And it's true when governments are subsidising companies that then pay money at profits to their shareholders. You know, huge dividends to their shareholders. There is socialism for some sections of society, for the corporate world, but there is, what, there's none for the poor people? How does that work? How is that, you know, neoliberalism has seen this huge shift in wealth towards those who already have the wealth. Mm -hmm. There was a global financial crisis, and although there were some that were like, okay, well, this system's broken, there needs to be checks and balances, actually it just oversaw a huge redistribution of wealth in favour of the wealthy. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the the same thing's happened with covid if there's one, if there's one thing that people exactly. with huge, huge economic power are very successful at, it's using every crisis as an opportunity to to continue. I mean, mm-hmm. it, 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 you, if you if you want to sort of find some numbers on this, just look at the number that how the the sort of richest one percent have got richer in the last two years. You know, during a period mm-hmm. of, of of again unprecedented crisis in in the modern era, anyway. 
yeah, I also, I don't know whether you noticed this, but with the um, Mick Lynch, like, I don't know, really super eloquently talking on TV and like basically just whenever he's being asked really stupid questions, just like answering them, you know, I guess with the kind of um, disdain for the media that he should because the questions are stupid. Mm. But like certainly in the 1970s, it's really interesting. Me and you have spoken about this. We spoke about this in our house pl- houseplants episode. The first one. The first one of Cursed Objects about how during the 1970s, the middle class were trying to refashion themselves as classless. So certainly in the kind of post-war period, um, there was a kind of blurring of class by this kind of, uh, you know, relative post-war affluence that we were talking about that often was kind of led by the middle classes who wanted to appear kind of like classless. And actually the prominence of the unions in the 1970s really brought um, class kind of back to the fore as a, as I guess, as a political lens. So um, it's really interesting. So, I, I mean, I really had this listening to Mick Lynch, you know, just he's like, I'm a working class guy. I'm not who you're trying to paint me out to be some union baron, whatever that means. You know, I'm literally a working class person that's trying to protect the interests uh, of a lot of workers, of cleaners who have to pay like huge amounts to get onto trains because their their railfare isn't subsidized just to work for minimum wage cleaning trains, you know. And um, I was really struck by that kind of similarity between the 1970s and, and now, specifically in the kind of class tension. So I don't know whether you've read Alan Silito's Pit Strike, which is like this really, um, just like this kind of little short play, basically, where there's this like miner in Nottingham and they go to London um, to kind of like participate in a, in a minor strike. And... There are just so many acute class tensions within that about, and, and and I think this is something that we often don't talk about all that often now. We kind of regard class as like, you know, what is class? It's so amorphous. What does it mean? Actually, there is a class component to how we understand, I guess, the struggles of the unions, especially for like people, maybe that maybe class doesn't look um, as clearly defined as, as we maybe imagined it looked in the 1970s. But like, it's still such a massive component of like how people experience their lives today. Well, yeah, it's a victory of Ultimately, sorry to say it again, it's a victory of neoliberalism that that class dynamics and a class as a lens through which to discuss your politics has been completely sucked out over the of poli- of our political discourse. Um, you know, by and um, you know, it's not the, the the big bad here is maybe neoliberalism, but there are there are people, there are human beings that are responsible for this. They, you know, it's it is sort of part of the new labor project that that famous quote about us. Uh, all being middle class now and, and, and the class tensions of the post-war period that ultimately won loads of gains for working class people are not necessary anymore because we've reached the end of history, um, because everyone's sort of just placidly getting on with things. I mean, this is the sort of 90s ideal of uh, mm. of kind of um, of the third way as well, is that is that you don't have class conflict producing, well, ultimately gains so, such as the weekend and you know uh like a limit on working hours and mm. uh, the minimum wage and so forth but yeah it's you know there was there was a there was a, a a political leader of the labor party from 2015 to 2019 that i think tried to bring that some of that back a bit via the sort of cipher of for the many not the few mm. and you know and then you could also look at occupy wall street and the other sort of movements around that at circa 2011 which spoke of you know the 99 percent versus the one percent but that sort of contestational politics 
it, it didn't disappear altogether. It just disappeared from the mainstream of, of, of political life. And so it's very refreshing to have someone like Mick Lynch being asked a question like, are you a class warrior? And him calmly saying, I'm, you know, this isn't about war, no, but I'm representing the interests of, my, of working class members, you know, and again, he mm. sort of takes, he always sort of managed to suck the poison out of every question, but also not, he doesn't run away screaming and, and, or equivocate when, it, when he is asked about whether he is a representative of the working classes against the boss class, which he is, you know, like, and mm. obviously people further to the left would, I'm sure, love to see sort of, you know, really sort of fiery, um, class warrior rhetoric but he's I mean he's shown how he can stay true to his politics uh, as as a representative of the working class without without getting kind of sucked into a very temperature raising kind of firebrand kind of rhetoric necessarily I mean he's not Bob Crow who was actually a Stalinist who <laughs> was you know a, a, mu a much more a much more sort of strident uh stridently class warrior union leader but but you know you have you have like the guy that's being talked about as possible successor to Keir Starmer West Streeting apparently according to a little snippet I saw on Twitter today apologized to fellow members of the shadow cabinet for sticking up for workers on uh, in the, in a debate over the the um the, the rail strikes which is exactly the sort of Extra extraordinary sort of neo Blairite thing that mm. that could that could not you could not have imagined happening in the 1970s in any part of the Labour Party, even though there were there were right wing bits of the Labour Party back then, but none of them I'm sure would have said like I'm absolutely going to steer clear of ever saying anything positive about workers. So there's I think there's a really interesting and like pertinent point that kind of carries on from this idea of the 1970s here, and it's in um, Richard Waite's uh, Patriots, uh, and on the on the winter of discontent. So the winter of discontent, and I'm quoting here, entered British folklore and became a direct counterpoint to the finest hour, creating a legend of resistance to enemies within, hmm. just as the war had done with enemies without. So um, I just think that there's like a really interesting idea here of like fighting the unions, like they're the, they're the ones that are like, um, there was an interesting kind of like historical counterpoint here. So like yeah. Britain was fighting its finest hour against against the Nazis and then it needed to really turn inwards, uh, you know, on the enemies within and those enemies were the trade unions. And I We're think that's something that's really powerful, powerfully been carried through, been believed by many you know, yeah. by on on the labour right, as as with the conservatives, and the other the other connotation, of course, of the enemy within in that particular moment is that the Cold War is still happening. There is a Soviet Union, and that the organised working class, as represented through the trade unions, are not dissimilar to Reds under the bed in terms of you know mm. they are they are enemies of Britain ultimately, and it was a phrase that mm. was used again over uh, about Scargill and the National Union of Miners in the 1980s. In fact, I think the enemy within is also the name of a apparently excellent book by Seamus Milne um, about the miners' strike, which I haven't read, but everyone says it's brilliant, and I sh we should <laughs> probably all read. Well, let's we'll do it when we do a, a miners' strike episode one day. Hi everyone, it's Kasia here. Thanks for listening to the shortened version of Cursed Objects. For the full episode, please consider supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cursed objects so that we can keep making more episodes that hopefully delight, sicken and lead you to question the world through bits of tat we find in charity shops and the darkest corners of the internet. It's only £4 a month, but with that we can do fun things like research and record, 
but also more basic things like eat and pay our rent. It really does mean a lot. So please consider it if you can afford it. If not, then please just tell a mate or tweet about it. Thank you.